I'd like for you to turn to the 15th chapter of the book of Luke to a familiar story or stories. It's from the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel that we will read in just a moment. Helmut Tillichy, the great German theologian, said, I once set my little son down in front of a large mirror. At first he didn't recognize himself, he was too small. He was just fascinated by the form in the mirror. But as he watched, as he looked, he began to see the similarity of movement. And then you could almost hear him thinking, hey, that's me. Something like that might happen this morning, certainly wants to happen when you read the parable that are the parables that are in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. When you first read them or look at them, it may just seem like, well, that's just a beautiful or interesting story, but it's really far removed from me. A long time ago it happened, or it's a far removed, interesting story. But the longer you look at it and the longer you read it, all of a sudden it just begins to sweep over you like a new dawn. Hey, that's me. It's like going to your aunt's house and she wants to show you the picture album of her trip to Hawaii. And there's your overweight uncle in this awful Hawaiian shirt, a lay around his neck and a hula dancer on each arm. And there's your aunt trying to suck it in so she can look presentable in her bathing suit, just on and on, picture after picture. And then there's a new picture album she brings out. It's of the family. And all of a sudden, you sit up on the edge of your seat and, and there's renewed interest and, and you say, hey, that's me. Where'd you get that picture? The Bible is God's story. And the parables, well, the parables are just pictures. And what I want you to do this morning is this. I want you to come along with me because I'm going to show you one of God's pictures of you. The book of Luke 15 is made up of three little stories, two tiny ones and one little longer. This last story is called the greatest short story ever written. And I want to tell you right up front the moral of these parables, and it's this, that you and I are losers. Now I know what you're probably thinking, oh great. I fairly dragged myself out of bed after a long, hard week, you know, where my ego was taking a beating out there in the jungle. And I come to church, and the preacher gets up there, and he hammers away again, calls me a loser. Wait a minute. You and I are losers in the sense that we have a terrible tendency of getting ourselves lost from God. You know how long it took the first couple to get themselves lost from God? They're found on the second page of the Bible and by the third page they're already lost from God. You know the story. God said you can eat of all the trees in the garden save the tree in the midst of the garden. That is to say that we're to live from the middle 
but not in the middle of life. For God is the sole center of life. But they sinned against God, did the first couple, and they got themselves lost in the garden, and they hid from God. And then all of a sudden what we hear is not these strains of love, but these cries, Adam, where are you? You've gotten yourself lost. We're losers. The other side of the moral is this, that God loves losers and he seeks them. Now read with me. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners came near, were coming near to listen to him, Jesus. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So that Jesus tells this story for his critics. Yeah, he did have criticism. And his criticism was simply this, that Jesus hangs out with losers. He seems to like them. He wants to go home with them. He even likes to eat with them. He fellowships with, with losers. And so he gave this, gave this story as a kind of a, an illustrated picture of what God really thinks about losers. For you see these critics, these scribes and Pharisees, they really thought that there was rejoicing in heaven if one of these sinners was obliterated before God. They really thought that. And Jesus said, no, that's not the way it is, really. God does not feel that way. You may think that, but that's not the way it is. God loves these sinners and He seeks for them and heaven rejoices when He finds them. Look at what He says in verse 4. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. Now being a shepherd in Palestine in Jesus' day wasn't easy. It was a dangerous and difficult job. It wasn't easy to find pasture for the sheep, so the shepherd would according to a predetermined plan, would lead them from one pasture to another in kind of an alteration of finding pastures. And sometimes it meant that he had to take them over these treacherous mountain passes. Many of them were often plunging to their death, and some were getting lost. And these flocks were owned most of the time by entire villages, kind of like a co-op. And they would hire three or four shepherds to... To, to, to pasture them or to care for them. And so at the end of the day, they'd bring these sheep home. Sometimes one family would own one sheep. And if one was lost, they'd leave one shepherd out to look for it. And they'd take the rest into the, into the, uh, to the villages for the night. And all the village would stand watching and waiting for that other shepherd to come. And if they saw him coming over the hill with a lost sheep on his shoulders, all town would break out in rejoicing and, 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 and cheers and laughter and song. And Jesus said that's the way it really is in heaven when one lost is found. That's the way it really is. And you don't really know God unless you see Him that way. He rejoices when one sinner is found. All heaven breaks out when one is found. That's the way it really is wasn't hard to lose a coin in Palestine. They paid them in coins and sometimes one coin would represent a week's work. 
And it wasn't hard to lose them. It, was, it was, wasn't uh, uh, easy to find them because they had dirt floors in those little houses and they'd put straw down to keep the dust down. And so it was pretty easy for someday a housewife getting ready to do the grocery shopping to lose a coin in the straw and in the dust. Might be a whole week's wage in the whole street, the whole community empathized with her as she sought to find it and she'd roll back the furniture, what it was, and she'd sweep aside the straw and dust around in the house looking for that one lost coin. When she found it, the whole street would break out with joy. And Jesus said, that's the way it is. That's the ecstasy of the angels. That's the joy of God. This is the way it really is. You don't know much about God if you don't see it this way. It's like the joy of a shepherd bounding over the hill with a sheep on his shoulders. It's like a woman who has lost a week's wage, grasping, grasping that in her hand and exulting with her neighbors. That's the way it really is. Now the scribes and Pharisees would never see God like that. Not in their wildest imagination could they is found. And I want you to understand that when the lost is found, all heaven breaks out in the hallelujah chorus. Then there's the third story. It's a story of a man who had two sons, but they were sons. Now underline that. At the first of the story, one of these sons gets himself lost in the far country, away from his father. At the end of the story, the other son gets his self lost from his father in anger. He stays home, but he's just as far from his father as his brother is. And both of them have a shattered, broken relationship with their father, but they're still sons. And I think that's one of the kind of the secondary lessons of these marvelous parables, and that is this. That when you are a son, nothing changes that. When you believe in Jesus Christ and you embrace God, He does something in you called the new birth and establishes that relationship called child and father. And nothing changes that. You can just quit being a son of God. No more than you can just quit being the physical son of your parents. But you can have a broken relationship broken fellowship. You can lose the fellowship and the intimacy and the enjoyment. You can lose that. Some of you already have. For here is the point of this parable. What's this? That you and I have a terrible tendency to draw away from God. I've talked to many of you who have said this very thing. Everybody here this morning, in all honesty, would have to say, I have a tendency to get away from God, to draw away from the Father, to get out of the fellowship, to get away from God. I have a terrible tendency to do just that. Isn't, isn't that right? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. For we all suffer with this terrible propensity to get away, to get out of fellowship. Now I'm sure that this boy had conversation with his father 
something like Telic, he describes it. Listen to this, kind of long, so give me your ear. Father, I want to be independent. You must give me my freedom. I can't go on listening to this everlasting thou shalt and thou shalt not. And the father replies, my dear boy, do you really think you have no freedom? After all, you're the child in the house. You can come to me anytime you wish. You can tell me anything and everything that troubles you. Many a person would be happy to have such a son's privilege. Isn't that freedom? Look, my whole kingdom belongs to you. I love you and I give you your daily bread. I forgive your trespasses with joy whenever you bring to me the burdens of your heart. You're quite free and sub subject to no one. You don't have to account to anybody except me and yet you complain that you're not free. The sun flares up, no father, to be honest with you, I don't give a hoot about all that. I can't stand this constant training. For me, freedom means to be able to do what I want to do. And the Father quietly replies, and for me, freedom means that you should become what you ought to be. And now while they all look at the Father, how is He going to solve the problem? And the Father says not a word. He goes to the safe, he gets the money and without a word pays out the boy's share of the inheritance. He does not force his son to stay at home. He must have his freedom. God forces nobody. He did not force Adam and Eve to refrain from snatching at the forbidden fruit. Then wordless, the father watches the son leave. And so we say to, to the father, I want my freedom. I'm tired of all this thou shalts and thou shalt nots. And so we pack our bags emotionally and spiritually and we move out. We split. We leave. There are some of you this morning, at least watching on television, who feel a thousand miles from the Father. You've heard from me say before, tell about the man and his wife who stopped at a stoplight and she's sitting on his, her side, he's sitting on his side. And there's a couple pulls up beside him in a little sports car, young lovers. They're sitting jammed up together. They're in bucket seats, but they're, all, they're both sitting in the same bucket. And they're, they're in love. And he puts his arm around her and he's, he's you know, and as they take on at, off when the light turns green, the wife says to her husband from her side of the car, you know, we used to sit like that. I can remember when we sat up close like that, when we really love, were in love. He never changes expressions. He never looks. He just keeps driving and says, I haven't moved. <laughs> now there's some of you this morning who feel a thousand miles from the Father. Guess who moved? Guess who moved? Guess what has happened? Guess what has occurred? You, you, you somehow have packed your bags and you said, I'm getting out of here. 
I'm out of here. I'm history. I'm gone. Now what happens? What are the terrible consequences of something like that? It isn't long until you're discouraged and you're disappointed and you're despairing and you're in bondage. You know, a housewife doesn't have to get a CPA to do an audit of her books to know that she's lost the grocery money. Something's missing here. Something's importance lost here. And there begins to be this gnawing hunger in your heart for God. You know the feeling, don't you? And there begins to be this haunting knowledge that it's got to be better than this. It's got to be better than this. And there is this erosion of character and you begin to do things that you said you'd never do. And you begin to think things that you thought you'd never think. You begin to say things that you thought you'd never say. There's this erosion of character. What's going wrong here? What's happening? And all of a sudden there is this gnawing fear that you're going to be found, that you're going to die. And there is hurt and harm and if you don't remember the story, you read it over and over and over again until it suddenly dawns on you, this is the famine of a fractured fellowship. This is what it's like when you get away from God. This is the famine that's out there in the far country, even though you may be still in the Father's house. You don't have fellowship with Him. This is the famine of getting lost from God. Read it until that grips you. And he began to be in want. He was hungry, he said. Now he wanted something before. He wanted his inheritance. But now he wants something that his inheritance can't buy, that money can't possess. He's hungry. And he's saying to himself, just about this time, I bet you they're sitting down to eat in the Father's house. Just about this time, I bet they are bang the banquets being spread just about this time. I bet my servants have something that I don't have. The famine of a fractured fellowship. Is there a remedy for that? Well, I'm glad you asked. There certainly is. And it begins in verse 16 or 17. Look at it. 17, when he came to his senses... When he came to himself, is the King James translation. Watch this. It means that he got honest with himself. He got honest about the situation. He came to, his, to himself. He faced himself. And he faced the situation. And he faced his condition. He got honest with himself. A.W. Tozier makes an interesting statement. Listen to it. He said... All things being equal, we grow spiritually to the degree that we're honest with ourselves. So he got honest with himself. He said, this stinks. I mean, he didn't say this stinks. He said, I stink. You know, I mean, this is the way I am. And he quit blaming, he didn't blame anybody. He stopped blaming Others, if he ever blamed others, no blame of his brother, no blame for it to his father. He, he just said, hey, I'm here because I've chosen to be here. I've made a mistake. 
I stink. This is terrible. And it's all my fault. He came to himself. He got honest the first step. Reminds me of a story that came out of England when King George was just a boy. One day he and his brother Edward had their noses pressed against the window of of the palace watching some little street urchins in a snowball fight out on the palace, out by the palace, Buckingham Palace. Now, when you're the prince, you don't get out with cotton-eating street kids and throw snowballs, so they they wouldn't let him out, his guardians, his brother, but that looked like so much fun. So they slipped out. And they went out there and they got in a snowball fight. Now the, the cottony street urchins didn't know them from Adam. And they were just battling out out there in that snowball fight. But a misguided snowball went crashing through the palace window, brought the palace guard. He lined them all up like a precinct sergeant. Line up, he said. And now they're all lined up. He didn't, he didn't recognize George he looked, or, or Edward, you know, the prince and the duke. He looked, he looked like the rest of these street urchins there. So he said, what's your name? And George said, well, I'm Prince George of Wales. Oh, he said, smart aleck. <laughs> yeah. So he, he came to the next, he said, and you? He said, well, I'm a Duke of, I'm, he said, I'm Edward, Duke of Windsor. And he said, I'm telling you, we got some smart mouse. And he came to the third, it was a little street urchin, you know. He didn't know them. He said, and what's your name? And the little street urchin wiped his nose with his, you know, the cuff of his coat. And he looked over and he said, well, I'll tell you what, governor. He said, I want to stand with me, friends. I'm the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> now, there's some identities that you and I have assumed we have no right to assume. Some of us have assumed an identity that is not ours. And the first step back to the Father's house is to admit who we are and what we are and where we are. And there's a second step. He said, I'm going to go back. I'm going to have me a talk with my dad. I have noticed that the way we get ourselves lost from God is that we we lose communication. Now you say, well, I thought you just got through talking about the Father and the Son and these dialogues. Yes, but there's a difference in just talking to the Father and communicating with the Father. And I have found it to be true that we get, we, we get out of fellowship when we lose communication. Down upon your knees, my friend. You would come back to the Father's house you'd come back to the Father's house, to the Father's fellowship, then down upon your knees, my friend. For the way back to the Father begins on your knees. The way back to the Father begins when you open up this communication with Him again, when on your knees you go before Him again. To be sure, when you stop communicating with the Father, It isn't long, it isn't far to the far country. This is what the boy said. He said, I'm going to go back. I'm not going to talk about my inheritance. I'm going to talk about being a hired servant. I want to show you something beautiful. Now watch this. 
When he said, I'll go back and tell him, make me one of your hired servants, he wasn't talking about going back and asking for employment. There was a, there was a, in that day when, when you had a hired servant, it was a day at a time kind of an arrangement where you'd go out and you'd find a guy on the street and you'd say, come on and go to work for me today. And it was, you know, you paid him at the end of the day and if you wanted him back, you ask him to come back tomorrow and you paid him at the end of that day. That's what a hired servant was. What it means is that you have only temporary relationship. He couldn't have made him his hired servant. He couldn't have, you know, we're not lost today and saved tomorrow and lost the next day. It's not a day-by-day basis. He was a son. And so while he was out on the road coming home, the father saw him. He saw that dust rising on the horizon. He'd seen it many times as he'd watched for his son wondering how he's going to come back, what he's going to be like when he gets back. That day he strains his eyes, he sees him, and he runs to meet him. While he still had the rags of the far country, while he still had the stench of the pigsty, he fell on his neck. No talk about hired servant. He said, I'll tell you what to do. Get the robe and put on him. The robe was a symbol of honor. He said, get shoes for his feet. The feet, the shoes were symbols of sonship. That's why the Negro spiritual goes, I got shoes, you got shoes. All God's children got shoes. And when we get to heaven, we're going to put on our shoes and we're going to walk all over God's heaven. Because slaves didn't have shoes. Shoes were symbols of sonship. He said, put a ring on his finger that was the symbol of authority. He put your ring down on a stamp. It authenticated it. And let the party begin. I never get over hearing about that man out in California. He was a leader in the church. May have been a deacon. Could have been a Sunday school teacher may have been a Sunday school director. And he got involved in some things and he left with another woman, brought disgrace to his church, to himself. Well, one day his pastor heard that he was repentant. He wanted to come back. He wanted to get things straight, so his pastor went out to his home. He said, please come back. We'll forgive. Let's start again, etc. He said, Oh, I, I can't. I've brought too much embarrassment and shame. Pastor said, I'll tell you what, come tomorrow night. He said, Won't be anybody at church but just, just Christian people who will love you. He said, Come tomorrow night, and at the invitation time, I'll come back where you're sitting. I'll walk down the aisle with you. And that night, sure enough, he's there. And the pastor went back and where he was. And put his arm around him and they started down the aisle. When they got to the front, they didn't stop. The pastor just kind of led him on out the side door down to the fellowship hall and the church followed. They had a banquet down there. They had, they had tables down there. They had food prepared. It was a banquet. He was the honored guest. Had him at the head table. And they ate in quiet, sacred, sacred quietness. At the end of the meal, the pastor stood and he said, Now, this is our honored guest. 
And he motioned to one of the men, the man who had suffered the most, the man who had suffered the most for this man's sin. He said, Jim, go get what we've got. He went into a side room, came out, had a, had a suit, a sport coat, Hart, Schaffner, and Marks. Just his size. We'll call him Fred. Call him Joe, whatever you want to call him. He put the sport coat on, fixed it up, kind of creased, buttoned it, just his size. And he said, would you sit down, Joe? And, and, and the man who suffered the worst, he, he got down on his knees and he opened up this box, had some shoes in it, fluorescent shoes. And he put them on him, put them on him. He laced them up and tied them. Then he said, would you, would you offer me, would you hand me your hand? The guy extended his hand. He put a ring on his finger, had a religious symbol on it. And when that happened, everybody burst out in tears and song. I'd like to end this story there. But there's a little addendum. There's a little postscript. It's about the boy who's lingering behind. He comes in, his bottom lip protruding. He says, well, that's a fine, how do you do? He said, I've been serving all these years, not even as much as a thank you. He represents that labor, laborious, grinding out, trying to get the Father's approval. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? He said, there have been no times of rejoicing for me. He represents that person who day after week without spontaneity, without love, just keeps on teaching class and serving day after day, week after week, trying to feel close to God in doing it and not feeling close to God in doing it. Kind of reminds me of the little girl that came one day and told her dad, said, Dad, guess what I did? I made up my bed, I cleaned up my room, and I helped mother with the dishes, and I ran the vacuum. Don't you love me? And the father took his little girl in his arms and said, Honey, I loved you before you made up the bed, ran the vacuum, washed the dishes, cleaned the room. How far is it from where you are to the Father. It's just far enough to be desperate, disappointed, discouraged. You don't like the famine there, do you? You don't like the feeling there, do you? I tell you, He's waiting for you to come back. Would you pray? Father, it's true. Yes, that is me. That is me. Where'd you get that picture of me? And I've seen myself in both the boy and the far country trying to find the experimentation with life. 
I found myself in the brother who grinds out the endless week after week of duty. Lord, get us back to the Father's house. We pray in Jesus' name for his sake. There are three invitations this morning. Every, every, every heart tuned into this. An invitation this morning to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. There's no reason for you to be separated from God. There's no reason for it. Christ died that you might be reconciled. Through Him is reconciliation peace with God. You don't have to be separated from God. Come this morning to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting Him. Come this morning to join the church. Get in with the Father's family. There may be some of us this morning who've gotten ourselves lost from the Father. Come back. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.